Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. That's our study this morning. The title of the message is Jesus' Rising Popularity. Jesus' Rising Popularity. We live in a day and age of the paparazzi, where the rich and the famous, the known, the important, can scarcely leave the security of their own homes without being bombarded by the intrusive presence of people pressing upon them and taking snapshots of their every move. We know very little of the pressures and the pitfalls that such attention and popularity create, but Jesus knew them well. As we see Jesus live life and as he ministers to people throughout the Gospels, we see his popularity surging, people pressing in from all corners to get a look-see at this man who speaks with authority, unlike their scribes and Pharisees, who heals diseases, who gives sight to the blind, speech to the mute, heals the crippled and the lame, and even casts out demons. But most of us common folk, which it's good to be a common folk, don't know anything about the pressures of people snapping pictures of our every moment and our every movement. No one was outside my house this morning, probably no one was outside your house this morning, snapping our picture as we drove into church. But Jesus' rising popularity garners great attention for him, attention that at times would uh, cast light, favorable light on his ministry and attention that at times uh, would cause his ministry to be in great suspicion. If you have your Bibles this morning, and we encourage you to bring them with you, I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's Word together. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and these are the words that he pens. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the crowds, lest they crush him, for he had healed many So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. So they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Four main points on your outline this morning. These four points are not in themselves the application. These four points serve as the scenes or the movement through the text. 
There'll be application that comes in between each of them. If you're taking notes this morning, would encourage you to do so. You'll listen better if you do, is this. The overwhelming popularity of the master. The overwhelming popularity of the master. That is scene one. It comes to us in verses seven through eight. Let me direct your attention back there in your Bible to those first few verses. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Mark writes. It's interesting that Mark opens our text this morning by telling us that Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew with his first followers to the sea. You'll remember that opposition toward Jesus has risen quickly in these short first three verses of Mark's gospel. The religious leaders have collided, they have crashed, they have careened into Jesus over the issues of his authority to forgive sin back in chapter 2. The fact that Jesus keeps company with and is friends with tax collectors and sinners, chapter 2. With the fact that Jesus seems to refuse to to fast according to their legalistic customs. And for the fact that Jesus has a seeming disregard for the Sabbath. We ended last week with the Pharisees holding a council with the Herodians. Uh, That just means sympathizers of Herod. People who were on the side of Herod. So here you had the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, banding together with the Herodians, and there they began to plot how they might arrest and so destroy Jesus. And from this point forward, all throughout the rest of the gospel, the Pharisees will scrutinize Jesus. Every step he took, every word he said, would be under the microscope of their scrutiny. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day perceived him to be a threat to their power and authority. Jesus was very quickly becoming an enemy of the state. And now they're looking for a reason, any reason, to take him out. Now, let's be clear that Jesus did not withdraw out of fear. You do not serve a wimpy, mamby-pamby, cower-under-fear God-man. Jesus did not withdraw because he was fearful of the Pharisees. Jesus never ran from the challenges that surrounded his ministry. Jesus withdrew not because he was fearful, but because there was still much to accomplish before the cross. Jesus oftentimes said, the time has not yet come. And that is exactly true here in our text. Jesus withdrew because there was still much to do. There was still a great task at hand before the cross, which was indeed looming. And so for this reason, Jesus, along with his followers, withdrew from the synagogue. Ministry is not taking place in the synagogue anymore. Now ministry is taking place out in the open air, Jesus with his small band of followers. It's interesting that Mark notes no less than 11 occasions or 11 times where Jesus withdraws or retires from his work. He does so to to, uh, remove himself from the immediate presence of enemies at times, though he wasn't fearful of them. Jesus withdraws to pray, to be in solitude, for rest, and to teach his disciples. But even though Jesus left the synagogue, even though Jesus has withdrawn and he has now gone to the sea, he wasn't able to escape the crowd. Mark tells us here in the text, a great crowd followed him. Every mother in here knows the feeling. 
kiddos pulling at your uh, pants there, always having needs. Jesus knew that well. He wasn't able to escape. The great crowd followed him. It's interesting, too, the placement of the adjective great here. Paulus, in verse 7, it indicates that Mark is highlighting the ever-growing popularity of Jesus. This is to be expected, again, when you teach with the authority that Jesus taught with, when, when you heal sickness and disease and you cast out demons and you forgive sin, it's, difficult, it's very difficult to keep your ministry under the radar. I mean, the news about Jesus was racing across Palestine uh, like an uncontained prairie fire. I mean, look at your Bible here. The crowd that is coming to Jesus is composed of people from Galilee, from the, the southern region of Judea, from the city of Jerusalem and Idumea, from that area that is beyond the Jordan, that would be east of the Jordan River. This is probably somewhere in the ballpark of 120 miles away, by the way. And from the, Gal- or from the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon that are way up on the, the northwest sea, uh, or the, the, the Mediterranean Sea there, uh, that would have been a several days journey. And these people, Jew and Gentile alike, are coming out of the woodwork to see Jesus. Literally, from the north, the east, and the south, people are coming to see and to hear Jesus. Mark notes, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, again, word travels fast. When they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The word heard there, it's a present tense participle. It could be translated constantly hearing about all that he was doing. The great crowd came to him. We've noted previously, we can be sure that some came merely out of curiosity, just just wanted to have a look-see. Some came to be healed. Some came under the influence of, of evil, possessed by demons, and some undoubtedly came with heavy hearts that were hungry for the Savior. You got people coming from all across the land, and they're all coming for different reasons. From a human perspective, from the outside looking in, it appears that Jesus' ministry is wildly successful. I mean, his popularity seems to be surging off the charts here. The swelling crowds can't seem to get enough of Jesus. People are coming out of, flooding out of the woodwork to see this man who heals diseases and casts out demons and speaks with authority. But as we've noted on multiple occasions already, the crowds are not a sign of success for Jesus in ministry. Jesus' primary mission was to seek and save the lost. And he was not about to let anyone or anything interfere with his mission, even the growing attention of the crowd. Now, let me pause here and maybe massage a little bit of application here. That is not always the same case for us, friends. We are oftentimes seduced by attention and popularity. The people pleaser that resides in each one of us craves attention. As a matter of fact, we oftentimes allow the attention of others to dictate what we do and what we say and where we go. Our attitudes, our actions, and our behaviors all oftentimes influenced by others. The problem is that 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 attention comes and it goes. It's like a roller coaster. It's here sometimes and it's gone sometimes, and it's here sometimes and it's gone sometimes. And the result for us is that we end up living life like a circus clown trying to garner the approval of others. We may not wear the costume, but we certainly play the part. Friends, myself included, 
Your commitment to the master, Jesus Christ, and his mission must be greater than your desire to be liked and approved of. It must be greater. Jesus' popularity is soaring, but his focus on preaching the gospel remains singular. What we see first in our text this morning is the overwhelming, growing, surging popularity of the master. Here's scene number two. The pressing need of the multitudes. We see the pressing need of the multitudes. Write that down. Look at verses 9 through 12. Mark writes this. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is a Amazing few verses here, full of imagery. Jesus, seeing the swelling crowd, tells his followers to have a boat ready for him. Maybe it's Peter, who who would have known his way around a boat very well, that he had given the task to have the boat ready. We don't know for sure, but Jesus tells his followers to get the boat, get it ready. It's kind of like the getaway car. The man who's garnering so much popularity early in his ministry needs the car, he needs it to be, to be there, he needs it to be running, and he needs the door to be open so that he can slip away, get in, and be off. The crowd had gotten so large that there was literal concern that they might crush him. The word crushed here. The original Greek, it means to squeeze or to compress. It was oftentimes used of the pressing or the squeezing of grapes to collect their juice. When Jesus began to heal people, those with diseases, look at your Bible, it says, so that all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. The word pressed there literally means to throw yourself upon. That's the picture there. I want you to get the mental picture of what's taking place here. You have a massive throng of people who've all come for differing reasons. And they're they're pressing in such that Jesus cites a literal concern that he might be crushed. They're pressing around him, literally throwing themselves upon him. Hey, crowds can be dangerous. Crowds can be dangerous. Perhaps you've seen a video or even been in a line yourself as uncontrollable crowds rush into retail stores as the doors open to a treasure trove of Black Friday treasures. You've been in one of those lines? Crowds can be dangerous. Crowds can be dangerous. The picture here in our text is of a pushing, shoving, clamoring mob of people eager to touch or throw themselves against Jesus just in hopes of being healed. The crowd's an interesting paradox, as it is if you study this theme of the crowds through Mark's gospel. The paradox here, Jesus is fully aware of the misery that's present in the numbers before him. But the commotion of the crowd is not a response of faith, at least by and large. They are merely spectators at a show. They are fans, not followers. And as a result of the mobbing crowd, Jesus is forced to retreat to a small boat just off the shoreline. But it's not just the sick and the diseased who are in attendance. Look at your Bible there. 
Among the crowd were those who were demon-possessed. Mark describes them in verse 11, look there, as the spirits, the unclean ones. That's a literal kind of uh, uh, translation of the text there. The, The spirits, the unclean ones. And notice what they're doing. Mark says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, looking at him, they're looking at him. They're, they're gazing at him. As a matter of fact, the word there behind uh, saw him, it, it means to be a spectator or to gaze on or to contemplate or behold or to view with interest and attention. The idea that Mark wants us to get here is that the unclean spirits are carefully and continually watching Jesus. Jesus is watched by his enemies. You will be too, friends, and so will I. Christians, let us never forget that we live under a microscope in this Genesis 3 fallen world. J.C. Ryle notes that Christ's people must not expect to fare better than their master. They are always watched by an ill-natured and spiteful world. Their conduct is always scanned with a keen and jealous eye. Their ways are noted and diligently observed. They are marked men and marked women. They can do nothing without it being noticed. Their dress, their expenditure, the way they spend money, use God's resources, their employment of time, their conduct, and all the relations of life are all rigidly and closely marked. And our adversaries, they wait and they watch, looking To see if at any time we halt from our Christ-given orders that they might mock and rejoice. It's good for all Christians to remember that wherever we go and whenever we go there, whatever we do, we're being watched. Like our master, we are under the gazing eye of the world that we live in. This should make us, brothers and sisters, eager to avoid even the appearance of evil. Jot this down in the margin. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Paul tells us there to avoid even the appearance of evil. And Paul is saying there that if our actions are in any way questionable, if they could even be thought of as resembling sin, then don't do it. Don't do it. Not only must we abstain from evil, but we must also abstain from giving the appearance of evil. Why? Because it has the ability to tarnish our testimony. The very thing that we've been called by Christ to hold high in the world that we live in, our testimony of Christ, we want it to be unblemished. We're faulty in every way. We're sinners to the core. We fail daily. We live by grace, not our effort, not our striving, but we want our testimony to be pure in the world that we live in. That we wouldn't be a stumbling block to Jesus, but a highway to him in all of our activities. Friends, we cannot compromise with sin. We need to be careful to be salt and light to the lost in the world and not a stumbling block to the gospel. Now, let me take you back to these unclean spirits here in your text. The tense of the verbs here as it pertains to these unclean spirits are all in the imperfect. Here's what you need to get from that. It means that the actions that we see taking place, what we see these unclean spirits doing is a repetitive action. In other words, the unclean spirits are repeatedly watching Jesus. They are repeatedly falling down before him. And they are repeatedly crying out, you are the son of God. 
Isn't it interesting that these unclean spirits know more about Jesus than the throng of people standing before him? It's interesting to note that other than God the Father, back in chapter 1, verse 11, these unclean spirits are the only other party in Mark's gospel so far to confess Jesus' divine sonship. The first party to do so. They recognize who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. But they had no interest in worshiping him. That, that, that's not the interest here. They hate him, and they hate his redemptive mission that he's come to accomplish. They're not worshiping here. They hate him. They hate him. Look at how Jesus responds. Mark writes, Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Very interesting. Why do you suppose that is? Jesus charges them or strictly orders them not to make him known. I mean, the scene here is of a massive crowd listening to Jesus teach, watching him heal diseases, cast out demons, and he quiets the demons when they rightly reveal his identity as the Son of God. Why wouldn't Jesus capitalize on this moment to solidify his identity? Why? He silences the unclean spirits and he rejects their testimony of his deity. Again, Jesus never courted popularity. When the crowds came, Jesus wanted them to learn of his identity. Jesus wanted them to learn of his deity from his own lips and not the lips of unclean spirits. Not from servants of Satan. So he charges them to be quiet. Jesus will reveal his own identity each day as he takes a step and a step and a step and a step closer to the cross. Let me ask you this question, friends. Do you ever think your life is busy? Do you ever think your life is, is full of things to do, a, a never-ending list of tasks? Jesus' moments, his minutes, and his days were filled with the needs of others. I mean, Jesus was the, was the theanthropic man, theos God, anthropos man, theanthropic. He was the God man. But yet in his, in his humanity, in his personhood, he grew tired and weary just as we are. He, he felt the pressures of the needs and the demands of other people and other things. He was pulled in every direction, and we'll see here in just a few moments about how Jesus intentionally dealt with those pressures. But I just want you to think here. You ever think you're busy? Look back at what Jesus is walking through here. Look at Jesus' life and ministry. Scene number three. The clear communication of the mission. The clear communication of the of the mission. We see the rising popularity of the master, we see the pressing needs of the multitudes, and here we have a clear communication of Jesus' mission. Let me draw your attention back to verses 13 through 15. Mark writes, and when he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, let me pick back up on that crazy, busy thought here for just a second. What do you do when you're crazy, busy? Well, look at what Jesus did when he was crazy, busy. The first thing that Mark highlights for us here is he got away. 
And Jesus got away, and he went up on the mountain. Now think about this, friends. Jesus came to save men, but at times he needed to get away from men. In his humanity, he needed to remove himself from all the activity and the noise. The old Southern Baptist evangelist Vance Havner used to say, if we don't follow Jesus' example to come apart, we just might come apart. Donald Whitney has an excellent chapter in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It's chapter 10. If you don't have Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, buy it. It's excellent. Chapter 10 is on the discipline of silence and solitude. This is a discipline that many, myself included, struggle with. I mean, do we not, friends, do we not get swept up in the hustle bustle? Here's the problem. When we get swept up, Jesus oftentimes gets swept away. When we get swept up in the hustle bustle of daily life, oftentimes Jesus just gets swept off the agenda. If Jesus, is, if Jesus needed to retreat to the mountain, we must not think that we are stronger, more capable, or less needy. Some of us, and again, this is for me, need to schedule some margin in our lives so that we can get away and behold Christ. Do you have that place? If not, find one. Find that place that is free of distractions where you can go and be with Jesus. That's going to be one of the identifying marks of Jesus' disciples in the first place is that they were with him. They were with him. Go to the park. Go, go, not that it's any more spiritual. There's a reason we don't call this the sanctuary. The reason that we call it the worship center is because there's nothing more sanctified about this room than the lobby which you walk through to get here. But there is something that's oftentimes quiet, at least during the week, about a worship center. Come sit here and enjoy some silence. Go, go walk a trail. Go hike. Get up early before all the commotion starts. Stay awake when everyone else is fast asleep. Discipline yourself to get away. We see Jesus doing it right here in our text. Jesus went up on the mountain. The second thing Jesus did is he prayed. Look at your Bible there. He prayed. He went up on the mountain and he called those whom he desired and they came to him. Mark doesn't mention it, but Luke, the physician, who had a knack for details. We have some physicians here among us this morning. And we know that our physicians, and I'm very thankful for this, have a knack for detail. Seeing the small things. God's gifted them in that way. Luke, the physician, having this knack for details, tells us that prior to the selection of the disciples, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued there in prayer all night. Luke 6.12, if you want the reference. We see Jesus slipping away oftentimes to commune with his Father. Every mountaineer is familiar with the majestic Weisshorn Mountain in the Swiss Alpines. Its pinnacle surges an impressive 14,783 feet above sea level. The Weisshorn is considered by mountaineers to be one of the most beautiful mountains in the Swiss Alps. But its beauty is mixed with danger, as most mountains are. The elevation pitch, the technical routing, and the fierce whipping winds make summiting its peak incredibly treacherous. With that in mind, the 19th century Scottish theologian George Adam Smith wrote about once climbing the Weisshorn with a guide. It was a stormy day and they were making their climb up the sheltered side of the peak. That's wisdom, by the way. 
When they reached the summit, they were filled with exhilaration. And in a moment, George forgot all about the fierce winds. He leaped up and he was nearly blown over the edge to the glaciers below. His guide grabbed a hold of him and exclaimed, On your knees, sir! You're safe here only on your knees. It's a good reminder for us to have well-worn knees. The decision that Jesus was getting ready to make in the selection of his disciples was huge. It was massive. It was monumental. So much so that Luke tells us he continued day and night in prayer. Oh, that that we would be characterized as a congregation as praying people. There are a lot of times, and I mention this from, from time to time, a lot of things rather, and I mention this from time to time, that I want our congregation to be known for, marked by, in the community that we live in, oh, that we would be marked by a deep and abiding prayerfulness. That when people think, people in the community think about this peculiar set-apart people that gather here at 2911 Coggy Road, they would think those people pray. They do other things, but they pray. They pray. Our master models this for us here in verse 13. And then what else did Jesus do when he was crazy busy? Here's your last thing here. He shared the load. He got away. He prayed. And then he shared the load. Jesus knew that the clock was ticking on his earthly ministry. And he could not reach the multitudes on his own. He was one man. Yes, fully God, fully man. But in his humanity, in his ministry, he couldn't get to everybody. And neither can you. Neither can I. Jesus needed to select an inner circle of disciples that, could, that, that he could teach and train to minister alongside him now and then to carry on his work after his departure. Look at the text. Mark notes that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. I love this phrase here. I love the wording here. The force of the text here is that Jesus did the selecting. Jesus did the selecting. Jesus did not decide or I'm sorry, the the disciples, rather, did not decide on their own to follow Jesus as if they were doing him a favor. Rather, Jesus' sovereign call superseded their wills. What's immediately revealed here is the direction of Jesus' evangelistic ministry. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't capitalize on his uh, many opportunities along the way to enlist a mighty army of believers that would take the world by storm? I mean, surely the Son of God could have adopted a more enticing program for mass recruitment. Is it not rather disappointing that one with all the powers of the universe at his command would live and die to save the world, yet at the end of his life only have a few ragged disciples to show for his labors? Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus' concern was not to develop programs to reach the multitudes. It's because Jesus' concern was to develop disciples with whom the multitudes could one day follow. Jesus could have chosen to preach the gospel with the stars. Jesus could have chosen that the rocks cried out. Jesus could have chosen one of a variety of other strategies. But men and women were his method of reaching the world with the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ savingly, you're a part of the mission. You've been enlisted. You know the old children's Sunday school song? I'm in the Lord's army. Don't forget it. There's good theology in some of those songs. 
You're in the Lord's army. He's enlisted you. You're a part of his method and his mission. And notice the job description of Jesus' disciples here, or those men who are getting ready to be his disciples. Look at verse 14. Mark writes, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Let me say a few things here. The word appointed, it's not the best translation of the original language here. Poieo is the word there. It literally means to make. When we think about something that's appointed, we think about selecting or choosing something or someone that's already in existence. We appoint something or someone that already exists, but that's not the best translation of the original word poieo here. It is better understood as to make, to make. Jesus made the twelve. I don't know about you, that's pretty cool to me. Jesus made the twelve. It's interesting, uh, too, here, it's, it's possible, and this is not a hill that I'm willing to die on, but it's possible that Mark intends to recall the opening lines of Genesis here. In the beginning, God made, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, here's one thing that we need to be clear about for certain, and that's this. Discipleship, following Jesus, doesn't consist of what we disciples or what they disciples can do for Jesus, but rather what Jesus can make out of his disciples. Don't get those two things reversed in order. Following Jesus is not primarily about what you and I can do for him as if he needs us. The rocks crying out were not his method, but if we shut up, they will. Men are his method. Women are his method. But what we do for Jesus cannot be superseded by what Jesus is making out of us. The word apostle there comes from the Greek word apostello, means to send forth, means to send forth a messenger or an agent. In its most literal sense, it means the sent one, the sent one. By the way, if you're a believer, you are a sent one. You're not a capital A apostle, but you are a sent one on mission to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. You got that memorized? Don't just memorize it, embody it body. That's, that's our mission statement as a church. We want to make and multiply disciples in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation to be sent ones. So are you carrying the mail? Are you carrying the mail? Are you, are you out there proclaiming, hear ye, hear ye? The call and commission of Jesus' disciples is representative of every one of his followers. All of our personal ministries will look different. All of our personal ministries will take different form and different shape, but the responsibility and the privilege to proclaim the good news has been given to each one of us without exception. Without exception. What, what an honor. What a joy. What a privilege we've been given. Look at your Bible here. There are two specific reasons that Jesus chose the twelve. First, in verse 14, so they might be with him. This should be the pattern of every disciple. This is the principle of association. Friends, mark this down. You will become like those whom you spend time with. You can take it to the bank. You will become like those whom you spend time with. Are you spending time with Jesus? And secondly, 
here in verse 14. The second reason given that Jesus chose his 12 disciples is that he might send them out to preach. They were to be his ambassadors. And there's a deliberate order here, again. Look at your Bible. The disciples were to be with Jesus before they were sent into the world. They were to come and then to go. Discipleship is relational before it's a task. Discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. It's a who before it's a what. If you reverse that order, you'll see everything that Jesus has called you to do as duty, and it will quickly cease to bring you delight. Jesus equipped his disciples with two indispensable things as they were sent out. First, he gave them a message. They were to be his heralds. These men were sent out to declare the message of their king. And secondly, he gave them power. He gave them a message, and he gave them power. Now, let me make a, a brief statement here. We don't possess the same authenticating power that was granted to the apostles, but we must never forget the power of the gospel that we proclaim. There's power in the gospel. Paul reminds us, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus told the nucleus of believers at Pentecost, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. Interestingly enough, Judea, Sumeria, the ends of the earth, the very people that are coming to Jesus here in our text, Jesus is telling his disciples that they are now going to go out and influence those same regions. The mission was to come and be with Jesus and then to be sent out to the multitudes. Number four, the strategic selection of 12 very ordinary men. The selection of 12 ordinary men. Look at verses 16 through 19. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's just look at a quick snapshot of some of these fellows here as we land the plane this morning. Simon, Peter, Peter means the rock. Remember, Jesus gave Peter that name after he answered Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus went on to say, upon this rock I will build my church, Matthew chapter 16. But interestingly, interestingly enough, this is the same Peter who oftentimes put his foot in his mouth. Ever been there? Every single one of us have. Peter oftentimes put his foot in his mouth. It was Peter who said, they'll never crucify you. It was Peter who said, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. It's the same, same Peter who cut off the servant's ear to, to prevent Jesus' arrest. It's the same Peter who, who denies Christ. But it's also the same Peter who's first into the tomb. It's also the same Peter who jumps out of the boat with a reckless abandonment when he sees Jesus on the shore. He loves Jesus. It was Peter that said, you know I love you, Lord. To which Jesus replied, what? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. James and John here, sons of Zebedee. These fellows are brothers, cousins of Jesus since their mother was Mary's sister. Jesus called them by the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. 
there's question as to whether or where this name came from, but it's proposed this name was reflective of the time when Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria, and the people wouldn't give Jesus and his disciples a place to stay. And so James and John asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the people. Whoa, buddy. Hold on there, fellas. These guys had much to learn, did they not? So do we. So do we. And that's a good thing. We're in the middle of the already and the not yet. We're, we're, we're in the middle of this process called sanctification. It's a good thing. You growing? You changing? You becoming more like Christ? Is the old man being put off? Are you being tempered? James was the first martyr after the resurrection of Christ. Over time, James and John were transformed to be more like Jesus. In fact, it was John who lived to be a ripe old age and whom we know from our Bibles as being the disciple of love. Boy, we we go from let's rain down fire to being known as the disciple of love. How about Andrew? Andrew was an evangelist. He brought his brother Simon to Jesus. It was Andrew who, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he uh, told the disciples to feed the people rather than send them away. Andrew was the, the first one who made the suggestion in John chapter 6 that there's a, a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are the so many for? Andrew bought, brought it to Jesus so that it could be multiplied. This is what a picture of all Christian ministry should be, by the way. Interesting to note that his name means manly. Any Andrews here this morning? There you go. Philip. He was also an evangelist, brought his brother Nathaniel to Jesus. John records it for us. John chapter 1, verses 45 through 46. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. I'll show you. Bartholomew, we don't know much about him. Matthew, we've already studied. That's Levi, the tax collector, through the first Christian party in history, brought his non-Christian friends to it so that they could be exposed to Jesus. Thomas, we oftentimes think of him as being doubting Thomas, sees the dark side of things. James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, what a title. Don't know a whole lot about him. Thaddeus, name means courageous. Simon. Your Bible may say the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot. Uh, he, he came from, a, from an extremist national group uh, that, that, that hated Rome, wanted, wanted to free Jews from Rome's rules. Matter of fact, some zealots carried around little daggers uh, so they could assassinate Roman soldiers whenever it was convenient. Not everything in your Bible is supposed to be emulated. You know that, right? Rather, pray for those who are in authority. How often do you do that? And then Judas Iscariot here. Out of the list of disciples, Judas is the only one with that infamous title branded on his life who betrayed him. Who betrayed him. Suffice it to say that this group of disciples was an incredibly diverse group. None of them was a pastor. None of them had theological credentials. They were just 12 ordinary men. We know there was a fisherman and a tax collector among them, but no other vocation is told to us. 
It's interesting to note that later Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, were referred to as ordinary, unschooled men. If you ever think I'm just an ordinary Christian, you're in good company. Peter and John were just ordinary, unschooled men, but there was one thing that was clearly evident, clearly distinctive about Peter and John as they stood there before the Sanhedrin because they had healed a withered man, and that was that they had been with Jesus. Is that true of us? Are we who assemble here at 2911 Chicago Road, a praying people, who are noted as having been with Jesus? Listen, if Jesus can use a ragtag team like this to turn the world upside down, he can use you and me. You ever wonder, can God use me? Well, if you know him savingly, the answer is a resounding yes. God can use you. Are you sinful and flawed and fallen? Yes, every one of us without exception. But God delights in using vessels of mercy. By picking these men that Jesus picked to be his disciples, it's obvious that he wanted to show that he can use regular people in great ways if they simply be submissive and follow him with their lives. With the exception of Judas, Jesus could not have picked any men with whom the world would look at and think are less likely to succeed than the men Jesus chose here. When we read the stories about these 12 men and we see how they were so so slow at times to catch and to understand Jesus' purposes, it's encouraging for us because we are oftentimes slow to catch Jesus' purposes. If there was ever a group of fellows that from the outside looking in could be labeled unsuccessful, least likely to succeed, it was probably these guys. It was probably these guys. But we're reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than any men, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish, he says, to the world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be able to to boast in the presence of God. It's a good thing, it's a good thing that Jesus chose a ragtag group of disciples and that we're a ragtag church because it magnifies his power. Would have been a good place to insert an amen. Hey, friends, listen, we've we got to close. We're out of time. The reality here is there's no plan B. You're plan A. I'm plan A, and there's no plan B. You ever hold, heard the old extra-biblical, and it is extra-biblical, uh, story of the, uh, the angel there gathered with Jesus in heaven, and, and he's excited after Jesus' uh, resurrection, and uh, he says, Jesus, you know, let me, let me, let me see what you, what you got going on down there. What's, what's the program? What's the, what's the plan to, to reach the world with the gospel? And uh, Jesus kind of pulls the clouds back just a little bit, and he says, those guys right there. And the angel looks at Jesus, and he says, what's plan B? And Jesus says, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. You're a part of plan A, and so am I. And that's a glorious privilege and a weighty responsibility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your greatness. Thank you for uh, this story that resides here in Mark chapter 3. Pray that you would teach us, and that you would change us, and that you would conform us more into your image uh, as a result of having studied it, uh, that our lives would be a bright and clear witness for Christ in the community in which we live. Make it be so. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.